And so I think financial literacy is the same way. You can have all the right information, but if your belief system is getting your way, you're not going to deliver that. You're not going to do what you know you should do. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F word. Welcome back to the Most Hated F Word podcast. I'm so happy you're joining us this week for another fascinating conversation with Dr. Megan McCoy. But before we get to the conversation, I want to say thank you. Like I mentioned last week, September was the highest downloads ever on the podcast, which is awesome. So thank you. Now, wouldn't it be cool? Wouldn't it be if October had even more than September? Not that I'm looking. However, from time to time, you do take a peek to see who's listening out there. And I'm pleased to see that the podcast is growing and more and more people are finding value in the guests that we are bringing on. So if you want to share this podcast with a friend, colleague, or whomever else, please send them a link or head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. On today's episode, we are talking to Dr. Megan McCoy. So who is Dr. Megan McCoy? Well, she is a licensed marriage and family therapist and a certified financial therapist. She's also a professor of practice at Kansas State University, where she's the director of the Financial Planning Master's program. She also sits on the executive board for the Financial Therapy Association, amongst many, many other things. Her research focuses on how to improve well-being through improving financial literacy, self-efficacy, and locus of control. It's super interesting stuff. Now, today we talk a lot about our stories because when we tell a story, we spark a connection. And stories are how humans have communicated since the beginning of time. We do this by, like I said, telling stories. Before humans could even read or write, we would be telling stories. Because really, stories are central to the human cognition and communication. We, we often, and I know I do, engage others through story and storytelling and during these stories, we tell a lot more than just the facts and figures. There's emotion, there's connection. I was excited to have Dr. McCoy on the podcast because she uses narrative psychology, which is very similar to storytelling, to speak to people during financial therapy sessions and about our money stories. So this episode's a lot about using narrative psychology to write our author our own money stories. So during the episode, we talk about what is narrative psychology and how we can apply it to our financial stories. We also talk about how couples can use narrative psychology to help their communication and defining both their individual money story and their coupleship. We also talk about how society has created these stories, which we all follow. It's based in the social constructionism theory and how our narratives, our stories often relate to these global. We talk about so many other things like why we often marry people with the opposite money behaviors and so much more. Enjoy this conversation with Dr. Megan McCoy. Dr. McCoy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. We had a little prep call a couple of days ago and I was saying, <laughs> I, I see your name pop up so many different research articles that you've been doing and, uh, I thought you must have been 65 based on all the work you've been doing, but... <laughs> well, Zoom has a great... Like, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah it, it's a great pleasure to have you on the show. I want to first start with one of our prior guests, and I, I understand it perhaps maybe your boss now. He said that a pivotal moment of his was when he was at the Aspire Center, and he got to sit in on a marriage family therapist who really changed his perspective around communicating with clients and within a coupleship. And it happened to be yourself. So, <laughs> you know, you said that. Yeah. Right. And, and so I want to get your take on the Aspire Center and what, what, what you've learned from the Aspire Center and what, what have you taken forward since those days? And maybe 
what is it again? So people know. Yeah. So Aspire Clinic at the University of Georgia, me and Dr. C, who you're just talking about, alumni, is an amazing facility where they allow interdisciplinary practice. So we had financial planning students, us marriage and family therapy students working together with clients. We also had nutritionists, home design, and lawyers too. It was just really cool. And we got to treat the holistic client. I actually wrote a paper on how much the Aspire Clinic changed me because- Yeah, because doing this work illuminated all these biases I had around money, but also around financial professionals and how I made referrals. It just made me a stronger practitioner by getting to see Dr. C and other financial planners and do their work so beautifully. I honestly thought before I went into that clinic that financial planners literally took your tax forms and then went into their cubicle and did Excel sheets. And then that was it. And you never saw them again. They fixed everything overnight. Imagine how I was giving referrals. Like I was like, oh yeah, just like go give them your paperwork and they'll fix your financial stress right away. (laughs) Way to set people up for failure. So yeah, working with financial planners changed me professionally. I got more comfortable talking about money. I got more comfortable making referrals, but Personally, it helped me so much just get more comfortable with finances. Stop thinking that there was like this magical power that financial people had that Mm. I didn't have. I felt like when financial planning is done right, you create confidence in your clients that allows them to rely and trust you, but also feel like they can handle their finances, like they can do it. Mm. Wow, that's interesting. You used the word financial planners had this magical power <laughs> where I feel like so many people do think that and and really we don't. And I think what a, what a great clinic to bring all these disciplines together to learn off each other. Is it still functioning or do you know other similar, I guess Financial Therapy Association has some tendencies, but yeah, yeah. maybe... So I think the Spire Clinic, is, it's still there and is run by an amazing professional named Megan Ford. She'd be a great guest one day. I do think because of COVID, they kind of had to focus more on mental health just because of all the needs that arose. But I think they plan to reinvent the holistic care and I hope they do. It's absolutely amazing. Mm. I think the problem was that in the real world, it's really difficult to afford these multiple practitioners. They got us for free because we were students, but in the real world, it gets very expensive. And that's why I think cross-training is so essential. Like what your podcast is all about, teaching planners to steal, borrow, pilgrimage, (laughs) pilgrimage, whatever you say, from counseling and counseling-like fields. Like why reinvent the wheel? Why can't we just adapt what we already know works for clients and other disciplines and apply it to our work? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You, you just got me thinking so much about this, this Aspire Clinic. I didn't realize all the disciplines. And so I'm going to go to a piece of your bio, the last part, where you focus on improving well-being through financial literacy, self-efficacy, and locus of control. As I think about this Aspire Clinic, you talked to me even about design, nutrition. And these are all elements of well-being. And it just yeah, it seems like a fascinating place it's, or just a great clinic yeah. to have. It was so cool. Like one case, we had someone who had built a mansion right at the bubble. And honestly, they couldn't afford after the bubble to even finish it. And so they had pre-bought all this furniture in a small place. We're having to deal with a foreclosure on that dream home that they hadn't closed on and trying to figure out what they were going to do with everything. So we had a lawyer involved to help with bankruptcy and realizing that we had a financial planner involved helping with navigating their budget and what they were going to do next and repair everything. There was me involved dealing with the grief of losing their dream home. And there was even a home interior designer trying to figure out what can they do to maximize their space in their current living, figure out what to do with the furniture. I mean, it was amazing how we were all able to work as a team and address all these different aspects of, like you said, the well-being and learn from each other. Mm. And at the end of the day, like I hope all planners do more interdisciplinary work, but even if they don't feel comfortable or that's not their style, like I hope they at least can make a referral when they see that financial anxiety, when they see that mm-hmm. stress, when they see that conflict to a mental health professional or someone else who can help them. I recently had a, a guest, Dr. Ryan Clements, and he, he's a, he researches law. He's a, he's a lawyer. And he's done some fascinating work on 
the role fintech has in reducing financial barriers and increasing financial inclusion. And I feel like your earlier comment of like a lot of these disciplines are, are actually affordable or accessible to probably the people who need them the most. So perhaps any fintech CEOs listening, <laughs> that's a problem that we can solve with some technology as opposed to using the technology to trick people to buy more stuff. Like commonly <laughs> seen. I do think in the next year or two, have you guys, have you ever heard of that Noom app? That's like a weight loss app for, I don't know, psychology weight loss. I swear in the next two years, we're going to have the the financial noom come out and it's going to change uh, so many people's lives. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. All right. Okay. So that was my, uh, my aspire <laughs> I want to talk about, but let's, I want to pick one more time at this, not pick, look at the, your, your focus of well-being through financial literacy, self-efficacy and locus of control. Let's, let's focus on the self-efficacy. Yeah. Can you touch on why that is important and, and what has drawn you to focusing on self-efficacy? Well, let me define it first mm. for people who are listening. So self-efficacy is kind of like confidence in a certain domain. Like you can feel like high self-efficacy in podcasting, but very low in ballroom dancing. And so That's it's domain, <laughs> domain specific. But additional thing about self-efficacy, which I think is so essential to money, is that when a problem arises, you tend to approach the problem or want to problem solve or not give up or reach out for support. Whereas if you have low self-efficacy, you tend to give up. And I think that's so key to finances. Like going back to my magical thinking about like thinking that some people were good at money and I was like in the camp that wasn't. Self-efficacy helped me say, okay, I don't know this answer, but guess what? There are amazing websites that I can go to. There are amazing people I can go to and they're going to give me the solution and that's going to be okay. And that doesn't mean I'm not competent. That means I am competent by finding the solutions in probably a faster way. <laughs> mm. Your explanation really makes me think a lot about what I had reached out to you to talk about is narrative therapy. The link I'm seeing here is with self-efficacy. If, like, if I'm telling myself I'm not good with money or I'm not, then I'm not going to feel good. And I'm telling myself these stories. And as we know, humans, we're meaning-making machines and we love telling stories. Stories help preserve cultures for generations. So... Let's go into this narrative therapy. What got you interested in narrative therapy and perhaps link with self-efficacy and in our personal finances? Yeah. So narrative therapy was developed by these Australian and New Zealand therapists and about how we can help people tell better stories. Because even though we are meaning makers, we're terrible storytellers. And it Part of why I loved it so much is that my grandparents are all from Ireland and storytelling was part of our life. Like we used to play a game where everybody had to say a sentence of the story and then the next person had to continue it. And we would do it over dinner all the time. And so in my head, I do have stories going. And I realized because I am a firstborn, I might be slightly neurotic or if nicer said, conscientious, that oftentimes my stories about myself can be very self-critical. Like the stuff I say about myself, I would never say about anyone else. And so I was a terrible storyteller about myself. I was bad at money. I was bad at this, blah, blah, blah. And so when I discovered that I didn't have to be just bad at something, that I could be multidimensional, that I could be good at parts of it, bad at parts of it, it just allowed me to have better self-esteem, better self-efficacy. And I just found that my story became less painful. How does one get to a state like where my, my stories are less painful? Because I agree. And I, I mean, I speak from experience. I, I tell you're not smart enough. You're not who wants to listen to you. All these things go through your mind. And it's funny how you said, I would never say those to other people. And it's so true, but we say it to ourselves, which I don't know. That's weird. But uh, <laughs> how, how does one aspire to start writing that script differently or changing the narrative? Yeah, I think what's beautiful about narrative, it's really about designing questions to kind of uncover where it came from. Where did that story first start? You know, when you think of it, you kind of like personify it, which sounds corny, but I promise it's not corny, but it's somehow helping you bring out the problem from inside of you to outside of you so you can actually fight it. You can't fight yourself. You can't fight if you're having a relational problem. You don't want to fight your partner, right? If you're able to bring it outside of yourself or outside you and your partner, then you guys can be a team and fight against it, or at least you're not like your own version of Fight Club. <laughs> <You're> not- <laughs> 
So the idea is figuring out like, where did it come from? You know, where in my family did I learn these scripts about money that caused me to feel like some people were good at it and I was bad at it? Where did I learn that money shouldn't be important? So why should I fix it? Where did I learn all these beliefs? And then starting to recognize that, you know, we are, have like, millions and millions of seconds in our lives, right? Like over time, I'm not going to say our age, but millions of seconds have passed. And in those millions of seconds, there are moments where that thin narrative, that thin, nasty description of yourself is just not true. And so you as practitioner can help your clients kind of discover when was it not true? How can you build on that person? What was different about you in that moment? What, you know, what was the problem looking like at that moment? Ways again, to describe that problem outside of you. Like there was like an old corny Weight Watcher commercial where this like little furry monster would jump out to symbolize hunger. And it's kind of like that. Like, where is this self-doubt coming from? Like, what does it look like? What does it sound like? Whose voice is it? And then you get it out of the, out of you and you fight it. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I, I haven't seen that Weight Watchers commercial, but uh, <laughs> it's so interesting as I speak to many bright individuals like yourself about, the depths of the meaning, like where we've got these origin stories from, I always can't think help but think about myself. I think that's maybe natural, but uh, I, I was always shy as a kid. And that always created this thing like, oh, people don't want to listen to you. They don't want to hear you. Your voice doesn't matter. And it's interesting when I found the the field of financial psychology that I started realizing that to me, money actually represented like power and your voice mattered. And yeah, it was fascinating to see that. Wow. My little hairy hunger monster came out in just a different different (laughs) version. But everything started making sense after I started looking into kind of the origin of those stories. And certainly the stories still keep popping up. When it comes to stories, how much, if at any, do the shared social perspective on a certain situation, how, how do they play to the stories that we're telling ourselves. And maybe we stick to the, the money side. It, it doesn't have to be money, but how do these shared social constructs or stories impact the stories we tell ourselves? So the founders of narrative therapy would be so happy to ask this question because it was actually built on that belief that a lot of these stories are pushed upon us by the dominant discourses, the big stories about what men are supposed to be like, what are girls supposed to be like, what am I supposed to be like at this age? Like those kind of beliefs that we feel like are pushed upon us can definitely make our story narrower or or change the direction of our story. So absolutely, there are these cultural messages we receive constantly, especially now where information is just so at our fingertips is shaping us and shaping our story. It sounds like it. And I know people talk about change is hard. If we have these stories that we're telling ourselves, the social construct is like, you should have this much saved by this amount, whatever, if it's finances. Yeah. How do we start to actually change? And I, I heard you saying, like, let's go dig back and we're going to go see where the origins are. But many people would say change is hard. What would you say to people aspiring to change, knowing that, you know, it's not an easy journey, but is change possible? Change is so possible. You know, it's one of the things that narrative therapy thinks is part of the reason why change is so hard is that it is much easier to follow a bad script on how you're supposed to behave. Like, this is what I've always done in this situation than to have to create a new one. Like, it is much easier to do exactly what your parents did or exactly opposite to try to discover the in-between. And so I think part of our journey when you're doing narrative therapy is, of course, deconstructing, breaking down the past, figuring out where it came from and saying, this is not all of me, right? It's not like ignoring the bad. It is adding good to the bad and then figuring out what does the future going to look like? What is my new script for following? Like, what am I going to look like or act like now that I've made these shifts? Because a lot of times the things that we most want to change about ourselves served a function. Like the bad stuff we did served a function and part of us, they're scared of letting go. Mm-hmm. Like I'm a people pleaser. That's my biggest thing that I'm always trying to fix about myself. Like it's just, I, one time I banged a table in the middle of the night and said, sorry to the table. Like that's how big of a people <laughs> pleaser I am. But people 
pleasing really serves me well. Like people are nice to me. People uh, like me. And so it's very scary to give up the thing that I know is the least healthy about me. And I'm sure like those of you guys who are struggling with spending or saving, both of those things feel good on some level and they're part of our identity. So that's again, why we need to broaden our definition of who we are. So you make me think of perhaps change seems so difficult because like you said, it served whatever adaptive measure we're taking served a function. And we could probably tell ourselves a story that, Hey, no, that actually was good. But then I can imagine as you get older, it's not serving you well. And that's where the discourse or discontent is maybe happening. Yeah. Are there any like exercises that, um, near, yeah. okay, <laughs> let's, let's hear. Yes. This is my favorite thing ever. And anybody who's ever met me has probably heard it a million times. So I'm sorry. Hopefully no one li- knows me who's listening, but <laughs> there's this thing called the miracle question that came from solution focus and a lot of narrative therapists use it. And it's this idea that when you're sleeping, a miracle happened, but you're sleeping, you have no idea that it happened. So you wake up the next day and now I want you to describe every single little thing that's different about your day. Don't tell me you have a bunch of numbers in your bank account because how do you know that? You just woke up, you're in your pajamas stuff. Tell me about what's different about your room. What's different about who's around you? What's different about how you're feeling, doing, acting? What is different about your life? And in those little moments, you'll just discover what's missing, what you have control over to change without a miracle, what you need to let go of. That miracle question can serve so much to help you to identify who you actually want to be and, and where you're going in your journey. Mm. You know, before we recorded our last call, I talked about how I've been taking a master's in positive psychology. And I know solution-based or positive psychology borrows from it. But maybe just touch on how, like, the difference of what you're doing there, like, not sitting in, like, the deficit side and more so focusing on more so the positive effect. And what does that do to us? Like, like from like inside our bodies. Yeah. You know, we actually talked about this earlier, but the whole idea of the hedonic treadmill comes to mind, right? The hedonic treadmill is that we have these like, like this comfort area where we can only get this happy. We can only get this sad and we kind of go up and down throughout our lives. And what we know is two big components contribute to us staying on the higher end of our hedonic plateau. And that is first gratitude for what you have. And the second is working towards something. You know, that's why people nearing retirement often have a little bit of depression arise because what are you working for? What is your goal? What's your passion, your purpose? And I think going towards the positive lets you create these new goals over and over again. So you're constantly working towards something. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. You meet some retired individuals and especially like right now with the pandemic who maybe their goal was simply to travel and that's been taken away. It's, it, I've met quite a few people who are retired who are, are struggling quite a bit because they had this identity that was attached to something they didn't actually know. And you take away that meaning and that purpose. Recently on the podcast, we were talking about the fire movement, where, you know, they have a lot of good aspirational ideas of controlling their time, et cetera. But walking away from the, the structure of work, sometimes, you know, there's a lot of unknown or unseen meaning that you, you get from going to work, even talking yeah. at the cooler and so forth. I lived in Europe for a while and they said that one of the biggest difference between Europeans and Americans were that Americans tend to ask people, what do you do as one of the first questions? So especially in North America, I think there's a culture where our identity is definitely tied into what we do and what does that look like at any stage in our life? Let's go shift to a lot of your background as a marriage family therapist. And I know you've been doing some great work integrating finances to that, your practice. How important is proper communication? I know this answer is self, but I ask it because, well, and, and I ask this because intentionally. So the question is, how important is effective, proper communication with our spouse when it, we're relating money or anything? And I ask it because it's so simple, but yet I can look at my audio and I'm guilty. I can look at my audio books on my, my iPhone and it is heavily weighted not how to relate to your spouse or even children, which honestly, it's sometimes sad. Why, why are they so much focused on other things? So anyhow, why is it so important? And I don't want people to tune out because let's just, 
look at ourselves in the mirror and ask, are we actually focusing on it? Yes. Oh, I love it. Yes. I do think it's important. You know, the other day I was doing a presentation and sometimes when you're giving a presentation, you get a little nervous and you can't think as clear. So someone asked me for a recommendation around helping couples with their money. Right. And I was like, ah, I'm struggling. I knew of one, a great one called healthy and love the money or love and money, the healthy way. But I was like, what could it be? And then I hung up after the presentation. I was like, no, you don't need a book specifically on money and couples. You need a book on communication, conflict resolution, those tangible skills. You know, these great researchers who have a much more beautiful way of saying this, but Jeffrey Dew and Stewart once said something along the lines of money is the object that couples project their deepest fears, dreams, and hopes onto. Mm -hmm. And so it's not money that you're communicating when you're talking about money with your spouse. You're talking about your dreams, your hopes, your values, and it's all hidden under these money conversations that are so taboo in our culture. And little digression, but all day long, I'm telling people to talk to their kids about money. Like it's like my soapbox, I climb on it every day. And then my seven-year-old asked me how much money I had in my bank account the other day. And Sean, I just like did not handle it well. I was like, <laughs> I want to know. And I was like talking like for like 20 minutes. I was very proud of myself. But I'm like, did I answer your question? And she goes, I just wanted to know if you had enough money to buy me an LL doll. <laughs> 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 okay, well, at least I still had 20 minutes of telling her a little bit about what's the difference between the counts and why we save and why it's important. And yeah, <laughs> but it's so hard. <laughs> okay, I, I have a question to what we talked about, but I'm curious on this one. Yeah. A lot of listeners have kids who want to know how to talk to our children about money. After you uh, had your reaction, do you mind telling with a debrief included? What would you say to us? You know, my favorite kids book, just in general, not about mm. money, is this book called Nurture Shock. It's just like Freakonomics, you know, it took research that we just, or assumptions, research and assumptions we thought were true, and kind of showed how there's been studies that put on the head. And one of the greatest chapter was this chapter on fighting in front of your kids, right? And I think all of us don't want anybody like screaming and having yelling fights in front of their kids. But in the 90s, that became a really big focus. All the talk shows were talking about don't fight in front of your kids, don't fight in front of your kids. So these researchers came and looked at those kids who hadn't seen any fights and expected them to be like awesome, right? Like we did it. These are the kids who did the had the great parents that didn't fight in front of them. And what we found was that they weren't awesome. So what happened was it turns out conflict still arises even if you don't process it in front of your friend, your kids, right? So what the kids saw was emotions getting ignited and then nothing. They never got to see a model of conflict resolution. They never got to see that the fight ended and the parents were okay. They were left with an anxiety of, are my parents okay? And so you guys can fight in front of your kids. <laughs> this tells me about money is that we have to process things about money on the small scale. You know, having little tiny conversations more often about like your choices around money, your values around money is way more important than sending them down and say, match your employees 401k. Yeah. In, in fact, my friend Ken White at Georgia is doing a study right now. And he asked all these college kids, like, did your parents ever talk about money? And over and over again, these kids said no. And then later on, on unrelated questions, they started saying things like, oh yeah, my parents told me about 401k or they told me about this. But those kids did not connect it to financial conversations, right? And so money conversations with their kids are more than just lectures. They are those small moments in time that the kids see an observation of how much we tipped or what we bought or chose not to buy. And every one of those opportunities is just a moment to share. This is what I value about money. You get to choose what you value about money, but this is why I made that decision. And that's the best thing you could do for your kid. Mm, you know, you, you said something that really spoke to me when you said you get to choose. And the reason why that, I guess, resonated with me is because, I mean, I, this is my background is financial planning. And I get a lot of people talking to me or telling me, Hey, this is what I'm doing with my kids. And I could see a lot of their own money scripts as a child, maybe where they felt pain or they didn't get the attention they need. And they're almost overcompensating on their child. And, and when you said you get to choose, I feel like they forget that part and they choose and almost like imparting values on them. 
if, if we have felt that tendency, what would you like? If, I don't know if there's research around that, or I just feel like we need to clear up our money stories before we can yeah. start teaching lessons. Oh, I love that so very much. You know, you already mentioned that I teach the financial therapy certificate at K-State. And that program is so about what we call self of the financial planner, right? What is your story? How does it impact the advice you give to your clients, your kids, interactions with everybody? How does your story shape your behaviors? But because we know from therapy that the number one factor in outcomes in clients is the actual therapists themselves, their personality, their way of being, their authenticity. And so the same is going to be true for financial planners. And we were like talking earlier about how social media and financial advice kind of have a hard day. And I think Brad Klontz posted something that I love the other day that if financial advice is too big, it's not applicable. It doesn't matter, right? And if it's too specific, it's not true for everyone. Mm. And that's what I think parents and planners need to recognize when they give a financial advice that it is so personalized to the person that it has to be a choice that is made overtly and with reflection to really be a good fit for anyone. Mm. And also very empowering too for your child to have those conversations. Like under the context, like you were saying, I saw a paper that you wrote that was just very interesting to me in the fact that you guys studied how married people, if I get this right, were least likely to talk about money to their partners, Yes, but yet they talk to other people about money. Yeah. What's so going on? Oh, it was so crazy. That's study, by the way, again, with my friend, Ken White, who's amazing and Kimberly Watkins and just amazing researchers that I worked with. But that study, by the way, found 90% of our sample hadn't talked to a single soul in a year, which is pretty wild. Like I'm sure there's some methodological issues with the sample selection or the questions, but regardless, that's a giant number, even if it should be pushed down a little bit. Our married sample talked less. And I think what it is, is that so many things become routine in our relationships once we're married. Like, this is what you do. This is what I do. And you kind of stick in your lane. And so it's so sad, though, because like not only not having those financial conversations with your partner is probably slowing down your progress and your financial goals, but like, man, talking about financial goals with your partner is such a way to increase commitment. Because as you talk about what you guys are going to do together in 10 years, all of a sudden it's not like I'm going to Europe in 10 years. It's we're going to Europe together in 10 years. And you're going to be so much more committed to overcoming the bumps in the road if you have these plans with each other that revolve around each other in the future. Hmm. You really get me thinking here about, again, your background, which I think is so perfect for um, this conversation. I don't know the stats, but you know, couples probably get used to each other. Maybe that's why divorce rates are so high. Yeah. Can you see authentic, genuine money conversations as a way to kind of, sure, and we talked about this a bit, there's some conflict, but maybe actually the medium to bring each other closer together. When we start, like you said, you made me think about that when you start having like we goals instead of me goals. Yeah, we goals versus the, I absolutely think that having financial goals makes you feel like a teammate. So you get to celebrate small successes together. You're going to reach those goals faster. So you're going to feel like, oh, our life is so good being married. And the third thing, like I said, you just, it cements you guys together. I don't think the study is, has been, I think the study has been disproven after a couple of replications, but there's a great study I read in grad school that showed that couple satisfaction when even if they dip within five years tends to go back to a norm. And I love telling that to clients. I'm like, you're in a dip right now, but if you stay together, if you work on this in five years, you'll be better than you were before. Right. Just like hold on. And I think again, tying those financial goals together makes you hold on for that roller coaster dip so that you can go back up together. Mm. There's such a taboo talking about money that just shifting it from only being about like financial stress or a financial problem to goals lets you have some fun conversations in the midst of all the bad conversations. Mm -hmm. And that's just great to get the, your sea legs when it comes to talking about money. Goals is mostly Europe or whatever example you gave yeah. these positive things, like shared beliefs of how you envision life versus why didn't you pay the credit card? Why don't you do this? Why don't you do this? Which I mean, if all the conversations were negative, no wonder we don't want to talk about it. So yeah, 
And kind of like the scarcity mindset. I mean, Megan Lertz has a great article on Michael Kitch's blog about the scarcity mindset around money and how that causes couples conflict because it's one of the only things that we'll come, like fight about that there's a finite amount of, right? Like there's always more garbage to be taken out. So if you don't fight about garbage, you'll have another garbage can to deal with another day. But if you're fighting about money, there really is a finite amount that you guys have to negotiate as a team. And so it adds an extra need for true communication skills and true sense of let's brainstorm solutions that work for both of us. Hmm. It's almost like these difficulties with monies, these dips you talked about are going to happen because it's, you know, it's life and, and, but we can frame it as like, this is our opportunity to become more connected in in this very could be challenging time, but we could use it as an opportunity to grow more. Yeah. You know, I'm a people pleaser, so I'm obviously conflict avoidant. And so I spent my whole life dreaming about being a therapist. And I spent my whole time thinking that as a therapist, I was going to stop people fighting. And then I became a therapist and all I do is encourage people to fight more and smaller. <laughs> <laughs> like, this is very strange. But fights are like a vehicle to intimacy. They are a vehicle to meet each other's needs better. They are a vehicle to feel closer and have a better understanding. Like having small, non-nasty fights is the greatest gift you'll give to your relationship. That is a wonderful quote that I'm <laughs> going to take away. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, I see the relevancy and especially when the makeup is there, which is bringing me back to the kids. And I feel like that's the most important part. Like we talked about, I'm going back to kids, sorry, is like making up in front of the kids that, okay, mom and dad are okay, or whomever the parental yeah. figures are. If you like really reflect on the closest moments of you and your partner's relationship, like many of them are like wedding days or like giving birth, but then if you think about it. Some of them are those moments after a fight where you're in each other's arms and feel like we're going to be fine. Like that moment after the storm is actually quite beautiful sometimes. Why do we marry people with opposite or not all the time at times we can marry people or we have the tendency to marry people with opposite money personalities. Uh, I love this question so very much because people always talk about like marrying your opposite or they're my opposite, but that's frankly not, not true. Like most of us marry people very similar to us, like in the big stuff, like the same political views, the same religious views, like because those worldviews are kind of essential to have a shared meaning, right? But I do think this research has shown we tend to marry our opposites. Like the saver looks at the spender and is like, oh my gosh, you're having so much fun. Like, you know how to embrace life and do fun things. I'm so attracted to that. Or the, the spender is looking at the saver and be like, oh my gosh, you're so responsible. Like, I think you're going to be so successful because you have such a good head on your shoulders. And then you're married for 10 years and you're like, uh, this is kind of annoying. <laughs> so yes, we have tended to marry our opposites. Not everybody, but a lot of people do. And that is rare for couples. This idea of couples like communicating properly. I like the idea of going back to the miracle question and the narrative therapy. If we're a couple and we, we start creating these narrative stories, like we do the miracle question and, and maybe there's some alignment, maybe not much alignment. And we talked about having these we, we goals versus me goals. But say we do this miracle question and we're like, oh, like yeah. we aren't very much aligned what would you say to people going into this conversation? Should we prep people that maybe if you do the miracle questions, there might be some differences? And what do you do with that? Yeah. Oh, man, there's a lot of thoughts. Like, I think not every couple has the same need for independence. Like some couples need more space, some sense of identity out of the relationship. So I think if you're a couple who really strives for independence, I think it's fine that the miracle story is slightly different. Like you guys can meet both your needs. I think if you need more time together, Mm -hmm. there might need to be some decisions around how we can find the best of both of these, each worlds. And there's a great article by Sarah Acevedo and Emily Perdon that's called uh, Conflict Resolution and Financial Planning. It is such a fun article, but what was fascinating to me, and I'm not going to get the terms right, is that I've always been a compromiser. Like, I want to meet your needs and I want to meet mine. So what can I give up to meet your needs? And, and we'll find a middle ground, right? And their article said, that's fine. That's not the goal. 
The goal is collaboration where we both say, what are our needs and how are both of us going to get our needs without sacrificing? We don't have to meet in the middle. We can meet somewhere else. And I think that idea of like, how can you merge your, your miracle day that both your needs get met. If you can say that, it's okay if you guys, one person's going for a run while the other one's watching a nice show. Like that's okay if you can then merge what you're doing together afterwards. It's interesting you say that. I think because that situation where you talked about if one's going for a run, one's going for or, or watching, whatever. If there's no conversations around that, I could see each other telling themselves a story about, oh, why is this person going for a run? Why is this person sitting down? Where we each have different needs. And to your point, it's okay. How important is it to have those conversations that it's okay? It's so important because I think what you're highlighting, the story we tell about our partner, also it touches on a cognitive bias that everybody's guilty of. It's called actor-observer bias. And it's us as the actor are very good at recognizing the environmental factors that led to our behaviors, right? Like I was cranky because I was tired and I was hungry or things like that. <laughs> but the observer, when we're observing others' behaviors, we tend to apply it to their personality. Like my husband was cranky because he was a jerk, not because he was possibly hangry, like he himself is. And so that actor-observer bias in couples can play dangerous games where we're not able to empathize with the contextual reasons for behaviors. We just start to apply a really thin story about them onto it. So you're lazy, that's why you're watching TV. You don't care about me, that's why you're going for a run. That applies to how their fundamental worldview is. And if we do more inquisitive questioning to our partners, and not like the, <laughs> what's it called, with the Italian, with the inquisition, not inquisition, our partner, but seeking to understand, seeking to recognize the reasons for behaviors that actor observer bias will be less terrible in our relationship. Hmm. Yeah, that's super interesting. And we started out talking about money and communication with couples. And we haven't really talked about money for a while, which is great. Because to your point about the child's book, you didn't even recommend a, a money child's book. If we can just get this communication, these eliminate the judgments, how much you save becomes an easier topic than this very emotionally driven conversation. Now, I'm curious about the way you just explained that about uh, inquiring. What about utilizing the, like, the learnings of appreciative acquiring where we're looking at people's strengths as opposed to their deficits? H have you ever seen any work around that with coupleships and money? Or uh, maybe not money, but... Yeah, I don't think I've seen it around money. And I feel like we should write that paper because I think it would be beautiful. I know the financial counseling program here in the States, they had that included in some of their writing and it was beautifully done. But I think you're absolutely right is recognizing the strengths. Like going back to how we're attracted to our opposite, we're attracted to our opposite initially to balance ourselves. And then once we get in the relationship for a while, we tend not to recognize the strengths of that opposite or where that opposite is coming from. So take money. If you are a spender and your partner starts saying, we need to save more, instead of saying, this is coming from his sense of concern for the future, his fear that we're not going to be okay, his desire to take care of us. Instead, he is always trying to control me, right? His personality is trying to control me. And so by instead flipping it around and saying, let me understand a little bit about what you're feeling below this message that I'm receiving is really powerful. In, in fact, like appreciative inquiry, the idea of um, nonviolent communication, mm -hmm. have you? Yeah, mm -hmm. that nonviolent communication of- Maybe explain help. that for yeah. people then, yeah. Yeah, I hope I do it justice, but nonviolent communication requires that you start by describing what you're seeing that's causing you hurt, right? Because a lot of times our perception is what causes us pain rather than any kind of quote unquote reality. So again, thinking of our partner saying that we need to spend less, you could say things like, when you said that, what I heard was that I need to spend less and that's hurting my feelings. After you explain what you saw, you felt, you heard, then you can express what human need is getting hurt by that. And then you can ask for a request on how they can meet it. But the main thing I like about nonviolent communication is slowing down the situation to help your partner see what you saw, right? Mm -hmm. So like I'm on my phone way too much. It's just a bad habit of mine. And 
So if my partner is talking to me and my phone dings, occasionally I'll look at it. And if he didn't know that I cared about him deeply, he might just think that I'm privileging the phone over him when rather it's just my probably OCD. So <laughs> he has asked me enough questions to be like, hey, when you picked up the phone, when I was talking, it felt like you were putting up a wall between us. That feels a lot different than saying like, you always choose your phone over mm. me. Like it's just, different to get to see through your partner's eyes what they're experiencing in that mm-hmm. moment. Yeah, very, very insightful. And I think it just allows, as we're talking, more effective communication. Um, very, very interesting. I'll put a link into some appreciative inquiry. I was just thinking, I've been jumping around so much, like there's going to be a lot of Google activity. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. That's good. You're, you're, you're putting it all in a small order so people don't have to actually go out and Google it. We just, we got the links. I have a... Uh, a final question, and then I want to hear about more of what you're doing and what the university is doing. But before we get into that, let's say you could be wherever you want in the world. You're at the life end, whatever that life expectancy is. It could be on looking at a, a mountain, a lake, uh, an ocean, whatever it is. And you're sitting on your front porch and you're going to write a letter to your children's children about what you learned about having a healthy relationship with money. What would be a theme of that or what would the theme of that letter be? Yeah, it would be about, hmm, probably the thing I discovered is money can be an opportunity for happiness, but you have to respect it. And so it's kind of a combination of seeing how to make sacrifices in some areas to gain pleasure in others. <laughs> mm. I, I like how you use the word respect it. Yeah, and, you know, it, it makes me think of balance when you overindulge in some areas, it may cause issues. So, yeah, I, I like that word choice. I think if I could teach my kids anything, moderation would be the key to all life. I'm yeah. not so I tend to go full speed ahead. <laughs> this is a, a personal question. now. Uh, kids, any other book recommendations on kids? Yes. Oh man. Four Money Bears by Four Money Bears? By Matt Gardner and Milton, the Money Savvy Pup by oh. Jamie Bossy is another one of my favorites. So yeah, why don't you tell us what you're up to? Are you what are you researching? What's Kansas State up to and fill us in? Yes. So I love working at Kansas State and I mainly work with the master's program, the online master's program. And it's so cool. We have three different tracks. And so people can get their CFP education as one advanced planner uh, track that teaches like advanced technical skills and how to run your own practice. And then of course my financial therapy track, which is all about integrating counseling skills to financial planning. And we also have a class called love money. So if people really liked this conversation, they might like the love and money course. And yeah, it's online and, and made for professionals. And it's really cool. I've received two grants recently. So two projects under the way covering some of the things that we talked about. The Financial Planning Association and Alliance funded this large team of research called the Money Quotient Research Consortium that I'm on. And we're looking at communication skills that facilitate trust and communication in uh, planner-client relationships. Mm. And we have planner and client data so we can compare. Oh, wow. And then we are about to start collecting data for a grant we had with NIFI, a really large group of researchers again, Miranda Reeder, uh, um, Jesse Jurgensen, Ken White, and Kimberly Watkins. We are looking at the KMSI and looking at the cross-racial validity of it, as well as how money scripts play a role in financial literacy. So we know we need to have objective knowledge around finances. We need to feel confident around our finances. But do our money scripts also need to be certain ways to have good financial literacy? That's super interesting. So like, does our money script like enhance or inhibit our ability to implement the, the teachings of financial yes. literacy? Right, hmm. right. So we'll measure financial behaviors and kind of Check that against their literacy scores, their self-efficacy scores, and their KMSI and see how it all relates. Hmm. Yeah, because I've also often wondered, there's so much information now, like financial literacy. A lot of companies, you know, I, I provide financial literacy. But then I look at like the implementation of it where there, I feel like there's a disconnect. Like yeah. we have all this information, but yet we're becoming more and more in debt and we're becoming more stressed about money. But like the implementation, I know that's a very, very, implementation science is difficult, oh, yeah. but uh, it sounds like in a way that's what you guys are tackling. 
So I hope we're figuring out one of the mis- missing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm hoping that's part of it. I think, I think especially now that the CFP board has added client psychology to the financial planning competencies, I just think we all recognize that you can deliver the most perfect financial plan, but if the client's values or beliefs or attitudes or cognitions are creating an obstacle, that plan isn't going to work. Like it's just mm-hmm. not going to be followed through. And so I think financial literacy is the same way. You can have all the right information, but if your belief system is getting your way, you're not going to deliver that. You're not going to do what you know you should do. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like I tell my kids. <laughs> <laughs> you actually just really made me think of something is that financial planners assume, like you talked about belief systems, and I'm linking this back to like our social constructs of this narrative theory is like financial planners actually assume that everyone values for the most part, that we all want to retire at 60 or 65 and that life should be a constant work progression towards that. And despite retirement is actually quite new if you look at human existence. And like, we just assume that that's the end goal, which is strange. Yeah, I know. Especially now that we're living so much longer, but beyond living because longevity hasn't dropped that, changed that much. We are just so much younger than we used to be at the same chronological age. I think that uh, a lot of financial planners, especially the good ones, are starting to recognize that retirement isn't going to look the same anymore and that now there needs to be a new purpose, a new identity. So I think the field is moving there for sure. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it really makes me think about this, this idea of questioning purpose more and meaning that we might not want to retire so quickly if, if we do align our careers. And I speak from a place of privilege that I, I am in a place to even say that. But I, I think retirement, to your point, will get pushed back also like intentionally by people because we don't want to play Sudoku for eight hours a day. Yeah, it might be like a different career or cutting down mm. hours or... I know. I think once you answer that mirror question for yourself, you'd realize that like, I don't know, you can't golf every day. You need something to do mm-hmm. times. <laughs> no, absolutely. What is that going to be? And hopefully there's a job out there that kind of fits that. Or besides you know, where I live, uh, the winter is about five or six months. So you really can't golf. All <laughs> you got <to> ice fish. <laughs> yeah. I've never done that, but maybe, maybe oh, this winter. No, you're really- assumptions about Canadians and financial planners. <laughs> oh yeah. Our, our, our financial plans, the recommendations are ice fishing and golf. <laughs> I think that's the only choice. Is for yeah. Dr. McCoy, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate your time and I'll include links and definitely include what Kansas State is doing up to with all the oh, wonderful, wonderful courses. Yes. Come be my student. Come be the rest of my colleague students. We love to have you. <laughs> yeah. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Most Hated F Word podcast. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Megan McCoy as much as I did. Thank you for tuning in and we'll see you next week. Until then, take care.